Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. One of the things that we want to do with Deeper Questions is explore a mix of both general and niche topics. Sometimes looking at questions that everyone asks, you know, those super common objections or cultural things that fill up the newsfeed. But sometimes we want to look at questions that few people are asking, but maybe more people should be, perhaps. Wading into topics that are relatively untouched and yet quite profound. We're going to do the latter in this episode. And even more than that, we're going to have our first guest who's not a Christian, which I've been very excited about for this show. This week, we explore the question, can atheists have mystical experiences? Which you're probably thinking by definition, that's got to be a no. But hear us out a bit. Our guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I learned heaps through this conversation. But even more than that, it was a really refreshing opportunity to talk across different belief systems, to hear how other people process and categorise their individual experiences, and to lean into the grey areas together. I found this conversation so fun, endlessly fascinating, and even a bit magical, and I hope you will too. My name is Aaron, and this is Deeper Questions. My definition of a mystical experience kind of still has the phenomena aspect that seems to stay consistent across many religious faiths. But the part that I want to actually separate is that idea that it must be connected to divinity. Ariane Moore, or Ari, is a fourth-year PhD candidate in philosophy of religion at the University of Tasmania. Ari graduated from Deakin University in Melbourne with a Bachelor of Arts and first-class honours in philosophy. She was also awarded the Vice-Chancellor's Medal for Outstanding Contribution to University Life and moved to Hobart in January 2020 to commence her PhD. While at the University of Tasmania, Ari has completed a term as the elected postgraduate president of TUSA and received a Vice-Chancellor's Leadership Award in Community Service. With experience across academia and government, including at the Parliament of Victoria, Ari has also studied in India, South Korea, and recently as a Fulbright Scholar in the United States. While attending the University of Texas at Austin as a visiting scholar, she had the opportunity to chair a philosophy conference at Harvard University. She's passionate about advancing higher education and all things Tasmanian. Ari is the appointed student member of the UTAS University Council for 2023 and a member of the Welcoming and Inclusive City Committee of the Hobart City Council. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thank you very much. So when I first reached out to you, you were in Texas, uh, finishing off your Fulbright scholarship program. And... uh, and since then, you've travelled to South Korea, I believe. So what's it been like getting back on a plane and what sort of stuff you've been up to? Um, actually, very relaxing to get back on planes, especially for international flights. It's sort of like the one time that I get disconnected from the entire world and then I can just go deep into, you know, drawing or reading or whatever. So I, I do I do quite like the long-haul flights. But yeah, I, I tend to fly around quite a bit in normal circumstances, not so much during the pandemic, but um. Yeah, going up to Cairns to see my family and Melbourne to visit friends and Brisbane to see other family. And I'm usually sort of around a bit, so I'm used to that now. Very nice. And uh, you're studying philosophy of religion and atheism studies. So I'm intrigued. Tell me about atheism studies. So atheism studies is a niche of philosophy of religion, really. It's just kind of to differentiate that we're looking at non-belief as opposed to philosophy of religion, which implies, you know, that there's a certain religion that I'm focusing on. And if I just say that by itself, usually people go, oh, okay, so what, what are you looking into? Is it Buddhism? Is it Christianity? And I sort of go, no, I look at 
the void of, of all of that. I, <laughs> I look at people that don't believe, but there's a big sort of sociological component of atheism studies, sort of like tracking the, the changes in belief um, across time and sort of where those populations are. But I think it's particularly interesting in philosophy because it sort of gets into those questions of, well, why do atheists believe what they believe? Um, and that's sort of, I think, the more public representation of atheism studies, which we have with people like the Four Horsemen and, you know, Richard Dawkins and, and mm. all of that sort of, that's sort of the more recognisable side of atheism studies, I think. Yeah, sure. And um, who have been some of your kind of intellectual heroes or influences in the world of philosophy? So I've thought about this a lot. Um, and usually the question is, uh, who's your favourite philosopher? Which I'm sort of like, oh, well, it's this sort of philosopher that has nothing to do with what I do, which is Leibniz. And that sort of goes down its own its own <laughs> track. But I really like this question because it was, yeah, focusing on a hero or someone, I suppose, that hmm. I look up to. And the person that really comes uh, to the forefront of my mind is Patrick Stokes. So Patrick Stokes is a associate professor in philosophy at Deakin University and taught the very first unit that I did back in 2015 when I really had no idea what philosophy was um, and then ended up uh, supervising my honours thesis at Deakin as well. And what I really appreciate about Patrick and what was evident from sort of the very first time that I, I heard him speak, which was uh, teaching and lecturing, was that he puts a lot of value in accessibility for philosophy. Accessibility and just making it fun and, you know, um, emphasizing parts that are maybe not as intellectually rigorous but are interesting. And I later found out that Patrick does a lot of public philosophy. So he writes for magazines and goes on radio and really sort of puts the word out about what he's doing and researching in a way that anyone could listen to and immediately grasp. And um, I just respect that so much because I think there's a real tendency in philosophy, unfortunately, academic philosophy, for people to become very comfortable sort of going down the rabbit hole of only interacting with people that are already working in their space. And so sort of you don't have to edit what you're saying. You don't have to think about how to make it accessible. You can just only ever sort of perform at that higher academic level. But of course, what that does then is actually removes the potential for everyone else to kind of have access to these ideas. And Patrick, throughout the years, you know, it's been almost 10 years now that I've known about him, um, has just been working constantly to make it accessible. And sort of, I hope that in the future, that will be me in some context doing the same sort of thing. That's something that I really prioritise. So Yeah, fun. And connected with that, when we were speaking previously, you mentioned having a crazy dream of starting a philosophy cafe one day. Um, yeah. Have you got a, a potential name for what you might call it? Oh, potential name. I'm not sure. Um, I have thought of armchair philosopher as something that could be fun because it's sort of saying like, you know, you don't have to be, again, like the academic philosopher. You can just mm. be someone who sits and sort of has an opinion. That's all right. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to merge a lot of philosophy, you know, public philosophy, access ideas with... Um, yeah, business ideas. So this idea for a philosophy cafe or like a philosophy festival mm. um, are things that I've been thinking about for years and I would just, I would love to see brought in. And I think School of Life by Elaine de Botton sort of tried to do philosophy cafe with School of Life. Yeah, nice. Um, so there's a couple of those throughout the world, very similar. You come in and drink coffee and, you know, there's a philosophy library and there's discussion cards on the table. But I think using the space really actively to do talks and do that sort of, yeah, public accessible philosophy work that I'm really interested in would be fantastic. Yeah. If, um, can I pitch one to you and a potential name? Oh, absolutely, please. How, how about the Kierke Garden? Oh, that's so nice. The Kierke Garden. It would need a garden though, or a garden theme. That could work. I think in Hobart, that would be yeah, <laughs> appreciated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can do, yeah, definitely carve out that sort of space. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I really like that. <laughs> 
So um, let's kind of get into the kind of substance of what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And it kind of kicks off with an experience more so than mm-hmm. anything else. So mm-hmm. um, you've given a TED Talk uh, on this very topic that we're looking at today. And you share about having a mystical experience as a 12-year-old. So could you share and kind of bring this to life what that mystical experience was? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't necessarily commit to using the term mystical experience myself for what it is, just because as we'll sort of unpack during the podcast, hopefully I'm I'm not sure that I'm personally willing to commit to that, but um, definitely a lot of the sort of phenomena involved in the experience tick all the boxes. So we'll just, we'll leave that one up to you, listener. <laughs> um, but what happened was I was 12 years old and I was just driving home in the car with my mum and it was sunset or a little bit after sunset, it was already dark. Um, and I had the window rolled down and I was just looking out the window the lights were passing by. There was a mountain in the distance. Sites that I'd seen, you know, hundreds of times before, if not thousands, growing up in the exact same spot. Um, and for some reason in this particular time, it was the way that I describe it as like a lightning bolt um, mm. where I just in, in a split second um, became sort of profoundly shifted and felt this very, very strong emotional surge of just – light and peace and I wouldn't even call it joy. It was just the sense that sort of everything was unfolding exactly as it should and that everything Uh. was in its right place and, yeah, just almost a sense of trust that everything was where it should be. And growing up, I'd been quite an anxious child, I think. Um, I was very sceptical as well, (laughs) which sort of was an interesting thing to be in a very Catholic family. So I think I had a lot of questions and I had a lot of sort of instability about the world and about reality and things like that. And in this particular moment, all of that just vanished and it just became this, this really strong feeling of of love and trust and all those things, all the, all, all the good things. It lasted for about a minute. So it was very brief and I, I was just, um, yeah, c- completely moved and I ran home and I went into my bedroom because I was just so overwhelmed by it and I just burst into tears but I was crying because I was happy and as I said in my TED Talk, I very embarrassingly wrote in my diary at the time, um, I wrote, I want to stand on top of the Eiffel Tower and say I love you to the whole world. That is really what it felt like, just this um, incredible heightened love feeling. But the thing that was also interesting is that that experience actually shifted, uh, I guess, my state of being for quite a while afterwards. Um, That anxiety was really diminished and I just, I felt a lot more trusting and I felt to some degree that after that I could understand that everything could be in its right place and that things were safe and yeah, so a real paradigm shift for you. A real paradigm shift for me. And the other thing is that obviously I didn't know quite where to place this. I was very confused by this experience. And I think that, yeah, reflecting on that for so many years has probably considerably um, affected my decision to go into philosophy and philosophy of religion of all things as well. Yeah. And, and so just to kind of fill in the context there, this experience happened to you after you walked away from your Catholic upbringing um, yes. and you were in a place of non-belief. Um, That's yeah, do, do you want to talk about kind of that process of, I guess, not seeing eye to eye with the Catholic church? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I was raised in a, in a very Catholic family and sort of we lived a couple of houses down from our church. And so we'd go every single Sunday and we were part of family groups. And, you know, my parents were very, very involved in doing courses. And I started 
teaching Sunday school when I was 12 and it was, it was a very um, active part of my life and, and community. But I remember even being maybe like five or six and looking around and I sort of had this thought to myself and I was like, what if all the adults are just pretending that they believe in God so that the kids will behave? Sort of that <laughs> idea of like God is always watching and I was like, okay, so this is kind of like the Santa thing, right? Like, you know, you, you're, you're good and then Santa rewards you. Like, okay, this is just adults trying to do the same thing. Um so as I said, I was very skeptical, um, but I still tried. I still tried. I really enjoyed the, um, it, it might, you know, sound funny, but I really enjoyed the the deep ritualistic aspects of it. I, yeah. I found that um, really enjoyable, um, sort of meditative. Uh, but then later, I think, yeah, I was about 12 years old and there was a particular sermon about you know, how uh, gay people, they're sort of welcome to come in, but they can't sort of be in relationships and they can't sort of act on it because that's a sin. And I remember just sitting there and being like, I don't agree with this. And just thinking, I don't think that, I don't think that in in my perception of the time that God would create a person and make them from birth fundamentally broken or sinful in the sense that, you know, they can never have love and it not be wrong in some way. Like that really clashed with my idea of what a loving God would do, yeah. I suppose. And that really started to strongly unravel um, my ideas about, about you know, the Catholic Church. And then the other thing is that I had never felt that sort of connection to God that, you know, a lot of people would speak about. They'd be like, I have yeah. a relationship with God. I feel a connection to God. I, you know, he's a presence in my life, all that kind of stuff. And I was just sort of waiting for it to happen. And I was yeah. like, okay, one day God's going to show up and I'm going to be like, hey, I know who you are, but it just hadn't happened. And after a while, I just started to go, you know what? All of this together is just, it's its just not for me right now. And I just, yeah. And it was a very uncomfortable conversation with my parents saying, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't really believe in any of this. Um, but uh, it took them a while, but they came to respect that and sort of mm. just let me do my own thing. So we've got a sense there of kind of this experience that has obviously been very influential and it's mm-hmm. kind of set your <laughs> academic trajectory as oh, well. Yeah, big um, time. And so, yeah, we got a taste of what it was like at an experiential level, but mm. let's now talk about it uh, at a kind of academic mm-hmm. sort of level. So your doctorate is looking at mystical experiences and whether people from a non-religious frame can have these kind of experiences, mm. uh, experiences that have typically been monopolised, classified, interpreted in purely religious terms. Yes. Um, and so uh, maybe to kick us off, could you define what you mean by a mystical experience? Sure. So my definition of a mystical experience is going to be a little bit separate from the traditional working definition of a mystical experience because it's sort of like a combination of the phenomena, so certain markers of the experience that we can tick off and say, okay, those things are present, um, that, that sort of qualifies. But it's sort of always been understood that those experiences occur within a religious context. So people can say, okay, um, all of this phenomena is occurring. I already believe in X, Y, Z. It's a religious belief as a, you know, an organized structure foundation there, and it all makes sense and it all goes together. So that's sort of how mystical experiences have been identified. My definition of a mystical experience kind of still has the phenomena aspect, absolutely. And it's really interesting because that seems to stay consistent across many religious faiths, which is very interesting. The the spectrum of phenomena is huge, but the sort of overarching um, consistent themes are really consistently present, which is very interesting. Um, But the part that I want to actually separate is that idea that... um, it must be connected to divinity. And so what I've sort of uh, come up with 
in doing this research and, and preparing this thesis is um, really been guided by the question of how could a super strict materialist atheist who is just like, this is all that exists, there's nothing else, when I die I'm just going to be, you know, eaten by worms in the ground, I don't believe in anything, science, blah, blah, blah. How could that person validly say I recognize this as a as a mystical experience. Mm. So that that question has really sort of guided me out of curiosity as well, um, because I don't identify as a materialist atheist, but sort of going to that hard line has informed my views. And I think that what I talk about with mystical experiences, secular mystical experiences, is nature. I talk about nature and I talk about the environment and wilderness spaces because I think that the critical thing is not divinity, but abstract being. So abstract being is, well, we can we can certainly get into that now yeah. if you'd like yeah, to, a bit later, sure. Abstract being is um, a, a conceptualization of a being that um, is very much real, but does not have the sort of uh, conscious markers or form that we would normally recognize in a being. So a being might be normally a mundane being, might be a human or a dog or you know, we can say, okay, I identify that you have consciousness and sort of you're doing all the things that you would do if you were alive and had consciousness. And, you know, I can sort of put you in space and say, okay, this is the space that you occupy. Um, Abstract being doesn't have that fixed point of being. It also doesn't have that sort of identifiable markers of consciousness that we have. But nonetheless, it's still very much an identity that encapsulates things that are beyond our senses, basically. Mm. So this definition really nicely fits the idea of religious divinity. So you would say religious divinity and whatever religion that happens to be is absolutely, um, you know, religious adherence to that divinity would say, yes, it's absolutely real in the sense that it exists. You know, I can't pin down its form into a particular space. You know, I can't uh, say that its consciousness is exactly like mine. Um, You know, I probably don't have the capacity to make statements about its consciousness, but I can still identify that it exists. And nature also can fit into that sort of definition. So that's sure. sort of the angle that I'm going where we might have two kind of models of abstract being. One is divinity, the traditional sort of gods and God and, you know, any any other sort of um, yeah, deities. deities, exactly right, uh, across all religions. And then the other type of abstract being, which a materialist atheist would say, yes, that does exist, agree, is nature. Yeah. Is nature. And so then a mystical experience is having that combination of uh, abstract being, all of the phenomena, and then some kind of connective experience to that abstract being. Yeah, okay. And so a lot of this work, you're drawing heavily, um, like this isn't completely on your own. Um, no, you're, no, You're no. drawing heavily no. on um, William James, yes. um, who was a bit of a pioneer in this space. Could you tell us a bit about him, his influence, what he's meant to you in your research and, and maybe, yeah, a bit of who he was? Yeah, definitely. Um, so William James was a Harvard psychologist. I actually looked up, he was born in 1842 and died in 1910. So that's kind of the yeah, time, time period that he was around. Um, And he was a Harvard psychologist who was very, very interested in religious experience. He wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. But what made William James really interesting from my perspective is that he was a hardcore pragmatist. Hmm. So he really was not interested in establishing necessarily the objective truth of things as much as sort of examining the effects of what um, certain beliefs had on behavior. So very much coming from that sort of psychological background. Yeah. 
And uh, William James wrote this um, book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and in particular, a chapter called Mysticism. And mysticism has kind of been lauded as the gold standard or sort of like the foundation of all current um, understanding of mystical experience which is fantastic, but I think that if the chapter is read in isolation, there's kind of a misunderstanding because James does use terms like God, but if you read the entire varieties, it's pretty clear that he's not willing to commit to the objective truth of God. He's sort of saying, you know, um, we can look at uh, religious belief as as a sort of pragmatic, functional thing that has very obvious benefits psychologically and to society and to community and humanity and everything else, but he's sort of not willing to, to go all the way with it. Um, and so this is really interesting from my perspective if I'm talking about secular mystical experiences because, you know, even the gold standard of mysticism is not actually willing to say, oh, well, divinity is absolutely necessary. There's mm. sort of that wiggle room for like, okay, well, there is a connection to something, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be divinity. And even according to James, we don't even need to know if it's true or not. Sure. And historically, that's the lens that it's been viewed through. Um, but then, yeah, you're trying to bring another lens to that discussion. Exactly. Yeah. yeah wonderful. Um, and so getting into his work a bit, could you tell us about the markers that he used to define a mystic experience? Yes. So we have four marks of a mystic experience. So the first one is transiency, pretty self-explanatory. The experience doesn't last for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is passivity, and that's really about the experience being received. So there's a lot of language around and across all religions, again, about these experiences being gifts, about these experiences being handed to the individual by the divinity. It's really viewed as the human being in that sort of connective relationship is is being awarded something. It's not that necessarily they've grabbed it from the divinity or they've taken it. It's that the divinity itself is, is giving it. But then also I think in perhaps a secular context, that passivity is often reflected in the sense that people are not looking for these experiences, Mm. Um, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure. But um, particularly in an environmental context, people don't go into nature thinking, I'm going to have a mystical experience today. It just kind of dawns on them or is given to them. Um, So that's that's a really important factor in mystical experience is that it's not um, taken. Yeah. Um, the next one is noetic quality, which I think can encapsulate, you know, a very broad variety of phenomena, um, and sort of phenomenology, the experience itself. Um, but I tend to describe it as a sort of shift in consciousness that tends to sort of bring in all of that and say, okay, you feel shifted in some way you feel, you know, you might feel lifted out of yourself. You might feel, um, my favorite one is the Alice in Wonderland kind of description where it's like I'm big and small at the same time. Um, you might feel a shift in time. You might feel a shift in vision. Like a, a lot of things can sort of change spontaneously in that moment. And then the last one is ineffability. And ineffability means that it's impossible to describe and makes it very, very fun as a philosopher to try and do work about something that is fundamentally ineffable <laughs> because, you know, the limitations of language just keep popping up and going, oh, you can get close close, but you can't quite get in there. And, you know, we do our best, but that is fundamentally an aspect of mystical experience. We can try, we can sort of surround it, get around it. But I think 
pinning down a single definition of it can be problematic for that reason. Sure. Yeah. And that's something that uh, Christian theologians have wrestled with uh, across the millennia as well mm. of, mm. Um, yeah, trying to describe the attributes of God. Some of it's there, but then some of it is that kind of ineffable nature and quality of God that's unseen and hard to describe. Mm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's cool to hear those four kind of markers there. And uh, James as well, he draws on uh, mystic poets and writers such as Walt Whitman and Henry David Thoreau and German Protestants, um, even Spanish mystics like mm-hmm. um, St. John of the Cross, which mm-hmm. is yeah, one of my favourites. And the common thread there is this relationship between humanity and their environment. Mm. So what, what is it about nature that can make us feel these unique feelings that we, we don't get from the kind of mundane, quotidian sort of existence? I think the the critical thing is that nature fulfills that role of abstract being that I discussed before in the sense that we can't pin down nature to a single tree. We can't say, okay, that plant over there, that's nature. I can sort of take in the entirety of its form with my senses and then that's the end of the story. Nature has been before us. It will be after us. We can't conceive of its timeline. We can't conceive of where it is and what it's doing. And there's always that fundamental unknown in in that aspect of nature. And we never will. That's a really important thing too, where it's sort of like, okay, we might have a mystery that we... Um, are actually someday able to to perceive in its fullness. We can't ever perceive nature in all of its fullness. Physically impossible. And so the same thing would apply to divinity mm. in, in this sort of model. So nature fulfills those requirements. Um, it's also alive, sort of objectively, scientifically. It's it's alive, it's moving, it, it goes without us. I think that's sort of the, the critical part where human-based things like, let's say we build a a beautiful building and sort of we enter and we go, oh, wow, wonder and awe. But at the end of the day, that building is not moving without us. We are the the creators of it. Mm. Um, We are not the creators of nature. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, it doesn't need us. No, exactly right. It doesn't need us. And so, um, again, it's sort of like its own separate consciousness that is entirely outside of humanity and sort of what we can know and what we can control. Um, And so that's another big part of abstract being. And there's really nothing else that exists materially. You know, if we want to put it down to like, okay, well, what what is what does exist? We sort of have nature in the natural world and all of that that exists outside of us and then humans and human-made things. I, you know, when I'm talking nature, I'm talking like the mountains and the stars and the oceans and just, mm. you know, unfathomably large um spaces, I guess, they fulfill that criteria. Another fascinating idea that you draw upon is um, Immanuel Kant's theory of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Um, So he talks about the experience of the dynamic sublime and has has a heap to say about nature as well. So could you tell us about Kant and how he fits in with your work? Yeah, definitely. So I'm talking about Kant and particularly uh, his experience of the sublime, which was uh, a theory that he used initially to contrast with um, the theory of the aesthetic of the beautiful. Mm. So he was sort of saying, okay, in aesthetics, we have the beautiful and we have the sublime. They both have very uh, profound reactions in very different ways. And so he sort of said, okay, well, here's all the markers of an experience of the beautiful and this is what it looks like, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then he went into, this is an experience of the sublime. Now, the sublime is really interesting because it was actually introduced thousands of years ago in in sort of ancient Greece um, as that which is hidden or sort of like underneath something and then sort of developed through the years where philosophers kind of played with it a little bit, you know, not that interested. It wasn't until Kant sort of took this idea and said that the sublime was fundamentally linked to nature that it really took off and got traction and is still being discussed sort of 
in those terms today. So the Kantian sublime specifically is, is what's really interesting here. Because Kant was talking about, as you said, the dynamic sublime and also the mathematical sublime where humans have these experiences where they perceive nature and they might, you know, perceive the vastness of the stars or an exploding volcano and sort of the size and the power of nature is so overwhelming that in the face of that, initially, we feel completely overwhelmed. Initially. So this is what's really interesting about Kant is that he then says, however, humans have the power to reason. And so because we have the power to reason, we can perceive, you know, the the infinity of the stars or the power of, of a volcano. And even though nature gives us its biggest and best, we can still grasp that entire concept in our minds. We can still say, okay, yeah, you've given me infinity, but like I can still conceptualize what that is. And so, according to Kant, then, um, the fact that humans can reason and can sort of dominate nature in that sense makes it the fact, you know, the case that humanity is superior to nature and really kind of became a a justification for sort of that idea um, that, you know, nature is humanity's to use as we want because we are dominant to it. Um, So I do talk about Kant. He does describe a lot of similar phenomena to a mystical experience, um, but the end result is fundamentally in contrast with what I'm talking about. He sets up this hierarchy of, you know, humanity and nature, um, whereas with a secular mystical experience, it's connective. Mm. It's not hierarchical. It's relational. So that's a really fundamental difference that's happening there. Gotcha. And um, with Kant, would it be the sort of thing where he's saying that over time, as humanity masters and, and kind of creates these hierarchies over nature, that our ability to be awed by nature diminishes as well? Is that Would that be part of it? Mm, I haven't read that exactly, but I can, see, I can see where you're going with that. And I think that's a really interesting idea because traditionally the sublime was fundamentally about fear. It was about fear and encountering anything in nature that basically has the potential to harm us and just feeling that fear. Um, And Kant introduced this idea of like, okay, we have the fear, that's a component, um, but it is overcome by reason eventually. So humans do dominate. Um, So then perhaps, you know, if we follow that to its extreme, we could say that, you know, potentially humans just have absolutely no awe when they encounter nature because they just kind of go, oh, well, you know, I can grasp that. That's okay. I don't need to be scared of the volcano. I'm smart enough to sort of exist in the space with it. I have reason, I have capacity to reason. Mm. Um, but yeah, th- th- that sort of hierarchy that Khan establishes is is not mystical. And also nature is not perceived as abstract being. It's it's sort of just a medium or just an environment, just a space. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a relationship to, alongside humanity. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. The the potential for relationality isn't there if you just perceive the environment as again just an extension of the material world, the same as like a chair or a table would be. Mm. How can you have a relationship with that? Yeah. Um, but abstract being really emphasizes you know, the fact that nature is alive and continues without us. There's a yeah, really fundamental parts to it. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. So um, digging into the kind of mystical experiences, thanks for kind of sharing the kind of philosophical side of it. You can kind of see that it's getting quite specific and niche, yes. what, what it is. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah. so maybe let's go through a few examples of what would be probably uh, associated with a mystic experience mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily a mystic experience. Um, and the first one that straight away came to my mind and probably our listeners' minds as well um, 
would be that of things like uh, art or a music mm. concert or something like that. Things where you can have these life-changing, life-affirming kind of experiences in the moment uh, of extreme pleasure or happiness or uh, connection. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're not really the same, are they? Like how would you categorise no, those? No, no. And, and that's the thing. I'm not doing any of this work to try to diminish the incredible value that people get out of very profound, big experiences, because that can be a whole range of things. And it can be, you know, going to a show and listening to music and and tearing up and being profoundly moved and having a permanent shift in your life. All of that can absolutely happen, but that's not to say that it's mystical. And so I think the fundamental thing that we come down to here is again and again, that relationality, that that connectivity with something outside of ourselves, something that is bigger than us, something that is beyond our immediate grasp, basically. So you know, if we talk about perceiving um, an artwork that's very moving and might shift us, all of those experiences and emotions are completely valid, but that that connection is not there. We're not looking at the painting and saying, oh, so you imbue and you, you have some sense of being in you, you're alive in some way that's, you know, not quite conscious, but we're not going to make those sort of commitments about just, you know, objects that we have in our space, even though they might trigger very profound emotions. Um, so I think it's really important to sort of make that distinction between things that are profoundly moving, are transformative, are all of these things, but are not connective. The abstract being aspect is really what's fundamental. And when I started this research, I really was not interested in dismantling sort of the religious account of mystical experience. I wasn't interested in that for a few reasons, um, but I thought to take something that has come, an, an account or a model that has come from so many religions for thousands of years and just to immediately scratch it down to nothing and say we're starting from scratch, I think would have been just utterly destructive. It would have been arrogant. Um, I I didn't want to go down that path. And so, you know, my first year really of my PhD was just looking at religious mystical experience and saying, what is happening here? What are the the consistent sort of reports? What are the accounts of the content? And really looking at that um, to then inform my view, so not throwing the baby out with the bathwater basically is is what I was trying to aim to do there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, while we're on the topic of kind of assessing religion, that sort of thing, mm. um, so one of the interesting trends around the West over the last 50 years has been the um, the decline in institutional religion mm. um, mm-hmm. as the kind of secularisation process continues to happen. So your atheism and agnosticism growing a bit. Um, but they're not wholesale replacing religion. Mm. Instead, you have uh, the no religion category being filled with a, a sizable proportion of people that fall into the new spiritual but not religious category. And so, yeah, with that comes an increase in people seeking religious experiences outside the kind of mainstream traditional orthodox ways. So, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on things like New Age spirituality, things like tarot cards, witchcraft, mediums, paganism, occultism? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, why do you think people are drawn to these things and could people have a mystical experience in one of those perhaps? Great questions. Um, I think that uh, there's sort of two things happening in the non-religious space. And the first one, I I recently was in Korea and went to a conference and it was really interesting hearing about the fact that a huge proportion of the South Korean population identifies non-religious, 
but um, with a lot of like qualitative research um, has uncovered that even though someone might say, no, 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 I don't believe in anything. I am absolutely not religious. Um, they still have like a, an altar in their house, a sort of traditional altar. Um, they might still engage in, in folk religious practices as well as going to church, as well as ho- having a rosary in their house. And so it sort of becomes this interesting blend of, mm. of beliefs where people sort of take what uh, is useful to them. So I think that's that's a component and it's it's sort of very um rare for me anecdotally to meet someone who identifies as non-religious and not atheist. I think the people that identify as atheist have thought about it um and have decided for themselves that they don't believe in anything. But if people say, t- you know, oh I'm non-religious, there tends to be some sort of practice or some engagement um, if you sort of dig a little bit deeper and mm. might be for cultural reasons, but a lot of the time it also is for personal reasons and emotional reasons. So I think that's that's a really interesting thing that's happening where, you know, we have this big shift to non-religion, but then also what is actually happening in those spaces? That's what I'm really interested in. Mm. The other thing I think that you've you've sort of brought up is is uh, a looking at the increase of people doing like tarot readings and mediumship and um, witchcraft and stuff like that. To me, what I see as a really clear thread across all those things is a sense of individual agency. So like, for example, um, I have attended a lot of these things just out of pure curiosity. I'll go to sort of religious services of all religion. um, But like, you know, I went to a spiritualist church once to kind of suss it out and see what was going on. And I've gone to like a witchcraft, Sabbath, I I think that's how you pronounce it, um, ceremony again to kind of see what the practices were and be in that space and kind of, yeah, uh, learn through doing, I suppose, about even if I don't have that belief myself. Mm. And what I've really picked up on is is consistently in these sorts of spaces, um, there's a sense of immediacy where, for example, a grieving widow might say, what does my husband say about this? And then, you know, the medium can say, well, he says, blah, 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 blah. That's very fast. That's a quick answer. <laughs> um, as opposed to, you know, in a more traditional religion, that person might be praying for many months and sort of be reflecting and, you uh, it's a much more direct process, I think, with things like tarot, witchcraft and mediumship and people sort of get answers straight away. It's like very, very quick. I think the other thing um, that I've noticed that's consistent across this, um, as I said before, is a sense of individual agency in that I think in traditional religions, in that relationship to divinity, there's a there's a modesty, there's a humbleness in humans where they say we are not equal to our divinity. There is a hierarchy there, and our divinity is is pure, and you know has all of the the good qualities in infinite abundance. And we humans, um, you know, we're not going to put ourselves on that pedestal and say that we're the same. So that there is that kind of um, relationship hierarchy. What I've noticed across these new age spiritual practices, but also things like you know witchcraft and mediumship and stuff like that, is that um, the person doesn't ask necessarily. With with things like Wicca and paganism, there is definitely some aspect of, of deity worship. But again, that's entirely up to the individual. So it's sort of not prescriptive where it's like, okay, well, if you work with a deity, um, you know, you need to pray to them, you can blah, 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 blah. It's more of a like, you know, I'll ask you for something and then I'll give you something. So mm, it's a transactional. lot- Transactional. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot more transactional, but then also that person sort of um, isn't asking. And I think maybe people are attracted to that because, you know, our world is getting increasingly faster and it's getting increasingly, perhaps the perception is that it's more out of our control. And so Mm. turning to those sort of practices where it's like, I can control, I'm not asking, I'm sort of 
I'm I'm making it happen. I'm sort of enforcing my will upon the universe, reality, what whatever whatever it is. I think that is attractive to people as well. They don't want to feel as though sort of they don't have control and they're asking divinity for help. It's sort of like, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do a spell and it's just going to happen or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, those those are the things that I really notice and I think are key drivers, sort of broad philosophical key drivers in um in in this increasing. Okay. Um, so, yeah, pretty different to your research there. Um, and then another one uh, that comes to mind is using psychedelics and those sorts of things. Mm. So what do you mm-hmm. think of um, yeah, using hallucinogens and other mind-altering substances? Where, where do those kind of fit in? Because uh, obviously plenty of people have claimed to have experienced God when they're, they're high or in an altered state. Um, what do you make of these experiences? I, uh, I read a quote by, and I cannot remember who said it now, but I'm sure if you Google it, it'll come up very quickly. I think by an American Buddhist um, practitioner who said that meditation is like taking the stairs and you get stronger over time and you, you know, you trust your body and you're going there. Whereas dropping acid is like taking the elevator to the, to the top. And I think that quote was used to kind of say the meditation and the practice is so important, but it's kind of been taken on by the psychedelic community to be like, oh, why would I take the stairs? I'm just going to go straight up to the top. I'm going to take the elevator to the roof. Like, that's fine. But I think that the idea is really valuable to think about in the sense that if people already have belief and they go, okay, well, I can just, you know, pop a pill, take a tab and see God, we really need to look at where that's coming from. What is the origin of that experience? Well, if we can immediately pinpoint, well, well, okay, well, an hour ago, I took two tabs of acid and now I'm seeing God. Well, you know, we can, we can straight away say, okay, well, that's, that's the origin of that experience. And that's really important. That's not to say that psychedelic mystical experience, I'm not going to call it mystical, psychedelic experiences, (laughs) psychedelic experiences, can be extremely profound and life-changing and all of those things for people, but to kind of ascribe to it an importance Mm. that is beyond the fact that you ingested a chemical essentially and produced a reaction in your brain, um, a psychological reaction, we might call it, um, I think personally is misguided. Mm. And yeah, I I think that it has a lot of medical use and I, I like that there has sort of recently been a shift, particularly with, you know, research that's going on now in universities and, you know, uh, looking at psychedelics as medicine, um, as healing for particular things. But I think that if we just say, oh, you know, what is it? Take a tab, see God. I think that just cheapens the psychedelic experience and the religious experience. It diminishes both um, Mm. in some way. So definitely a place for that, but I don't think that it's anything to do with mystical experience. No. And I don't think that it has anything to do with religious experience. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all a separate category, isn't it? Like the, the, Yeah. The, the, the a Pacific totally, view. a totally separate category. And that might be a controversial thing to say, but <laughs> um, again, profound, amazing in its own space, but let's not just kind of blend it in with things mm. that, you know, seem similar on the surface, but once we actually get into them are very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to James one last time, mm-hmm. um, in his chapter on mysticism, he seems to imply that the line between um, these experiences, mystical experiences, um, and psychosis doesn't seem that distinguishable to an outside observer because obviously they're very highly personal, highly subjective, ineffable, mm-hmm. um, all these sorts of qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can't be like proven or quantified in any helpful way. Yes. Um, 
So I imagine there's this sense of self-doubt, being bamboozled, maybe even shame that comes with an experience like this. Um, have you had that with people that you've talked to? Um, and yeah, is there this sense of uh, being able to bring it out into the open, I guess? I've had that with many, many people that I've spoken to about my research. And then sort of after a couple of minutes, I'll lean in and it'll be a bit of a whisper and it'll be like, I've had something like that. And I'm sort of like, oh, okay. You're like, you know, the 10th person this week that sort of <laughs> confessed that to me. But I've had it myself as well with my own thing when I was 12. Like I didn't tell anyone about that for maybe 10 years. Mm. I thought about it all the time. I was just like, what happened? What was that? You know, it's really shifted my trajectory, as you said, but how can I talk about it when I don't have a religious framework in order to explain it? And I think that's a real loss, a real loss for people. And, um, you know, I, I heard from someone um, around the time that I was doing TEDx where they were specifically saying, I've had that and I've had that with nature where they said that they were driving back into Hobart. They'd been a away for quite a long time and the sun was setting and the light was streaming over the mountain and they said they burst into tears and more than that it wasn't just coming home but it was here's this mountain this nature that I have a relationship with and it's almost like anthropomorphizing I can never say that out loud yes um the the object instead of saying I have relationality to it and I'm coming home to see you. And I thought that was a really beautiful kind of example of, of, of what I'm talking about here where we might not even characterize that person's experience as a mystical experience. Um, they were just driving home and became profoundly overwhelmed and had that sort of relationality. But the fact that that occurred, I think, is is really important to bring out um, and to talk about openly and safely. And I think that the world would be a much better place if people were allowed to exist in gray spaces, if they were allowed to say, well, I had this particular type of experience and I'm not religious and I don't have, you know, X, Y, Z beliefs, but I did have this thing happen to me and I can't quite explain it at the moment, but that's that's what happened and be more open about it and sort of discuss these things um, instead of feeling exactly as you said, a sense of shame or confusion or sort of, you know, because I can't immediately put this into the, you know, the, the box of an organized religious belief that I've held previously, mm. um, therefore it's wrong somehow or it's it's confusing or it's, yeah. It's, yeah, or I'm a crazy. Or, I'm a crazy person yeah. or, you know, I, I do find, again, anecdotally that, and I think perhaps working in atheism studies while also allowing, you know, religious people to have their beliefs um, might bring this up for me personally as well. Um, but I've also found that people who sort of do identify as atheists and also particularly believe that the world would be better if there was no religion. So I would call these people militant atheists. They, you know, can listen to things like that and diminish people's experiences. And I personally find that problematic because I think it's sort of like another application of your beliefs onto someone else instead of allowing them to have their own experience and allowing it to exist in the gray space. It sort of immediately becomes like... yeah. Its own version of proselytizing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so then there's this arrogance of like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just talking about reality. It's like, well, okay, no, that's not that's not actually what you're doing. Yeah. Imposing your your set of of worldviews onto someone else. And I think there is a fear that if people share about that, particularly if they are, you know, working in the sciences or or something else where, you know, there tends to be a, a higher sort of uh you know, atheist population, um, that yeah, they'll get dismissed immediately. Um, and that's a real shame. And I think a lot of my work in researching secular mystical experiences is to really legitimize those experiences for people and to say, you're allowed to have this, you're allowed to say, you know, I don't have 
affiliation with an organized religion. However, I had this experience. It had these particular components, phenomenological components, um, and that's valid and sort of allow that to be an experience in itself and also say that experience changed me and it profoundly shifted my worldview and and all the rest of it um, without people immediately saying, okay, but, you know, about about that experience. So. So anyway, let's um, let's keep exploring that kind of world. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, uh, yeah, interested to hear your journey away from atheism because mm-hmm. you, you shared with me uh, another time <laughs> that you did have a, a stage of <laughs> being in that world. Yes. Um, so yeah, <laughs> how, how have your beliefs kind of evolved and changed over time? So um, as I said, I decided that the Catholic Church wasn't for me when I was around 12 years old. Um, but at that time, there was definitely no um, animosity. There was no kind of, uh, yeah, feelings against Catholicism. It was just like, oh, that doesn't quite fit or that doesn't quite make sense to me. And so I'm, I'm not going to continue to occupy this space. And then I think, you know, it was just that ripe age of being a teenager and it was, you know, the mid-2000s and, as I said earlier, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like the non-apocalypse. <laughs> you know, people like Richard Dawkins were really popular at the time and I kind of latched on to that um, ideology and I very deliberately call it an ideology. I think that atheism is a commitment to a belief. Again, people will be like, no, it's a complete void. I don't think so because, again, you're stating a claim about uh, something that we cannot know. Um, And they'll say, well, we do know. And I'll say, okay, well, you know, again, there's that sort of arrogance that I see in militant atheism um, that doesn't allow for grey spaces. And as soon as we can't have nuanced conversations about things, um, as soon as topics get immediately shut down or dismissed, I tend to sort of, yeah, become a bit hesitant about the sincerity of uh, of that belief. So that's sort of how I perceive it. But at the time I was just a, you know, myself, just a diehard militant atheist and I was like, oh, religion corrupts and it's awful and it only has destructive elements and stuff like that and very teenage, you know, angry teenager view, whatever. <laughs> Um, And then around maybe 18, 19, 20, I sort of started to come back and go, okay, well, that was a certain view. Um, But again, that's not quite fitting with what I'm seeing. You know, we we have in you know militant atheism sort of saying like, oh, religion is damaging. But then I'm like, oh, but then there's all these religious people doing this and doing that, and that seems really nice. And like, oh, these things are beautiful. And how do we how do we put this very black and white worldview of militant atheism in the world and have it stand? I don't think it lasts for very long. Um, and I had that experience, and so yeah, sort of around twenty, I started to go, okay, well, religion is actually really interesting to me, and I'm interested in what people believe and sort of how that influences how they live and sort of the benefits that they get out of it and, you know, the harms as well, but just the the full sort of spectrum and not just saying it's all good or it's all bad. Mm. Um, And then I went to uni and I was doing psychology and kind of not really vibing with it and did philosophy unit. My first unit was world religions, um, which just absolutely lit the spark, lit the fire where I was just like, this is amazing because, you know, previous to that, my exposure to religion had really been theology, you know, within the Catholic church, but now we're doing philosophy. So we're not, we're not asking questions from inside the house. Now we're outside the house, you know, looking at the entire house and going, okay, well, you know, let's, let's, let's see what we can do here and let's see the kind of questions that we can ask. And, and that really, I think, stimulated me to come back to studying religion, fully embracing the diversity of views, the diversity of perspectives, all of that with, 
I think a newfound uh, appreciation and even now I personally identify as agnostic. I realised that sort of as I said before, I think the commitment to atheism, it felt like too far a stretch for me where I was like, how can I make these claims? Whereas again, I'm more comfortable existing in the question mark as I, as I call it to people and I'm quite comfortable going, I don't know. I don't know. Like, let's see what happens. And also I think being open to things that can happen in the future in the sense that, you know, if you are a hardcore militant atheist and then let's say that um, divinity is absolutely objectively real and you do actually have that connection with divinity, how is your worldview going to be absolutely shattered by that? How are you going to actually be able to process that? Whereas in agnosticism, you sort of have that space of going like, whatever happens, happens. Like right now I'm in the gray. I'll probably always be in the gray, but also I'm not going to completely shut down things prior to them happening. So I think for me, that's that's a more comfortable space to occupy. Yeah, wonderful. And so coming back to earlier in the conversation, uh, you shared about writing in your diary that you felt like standing on the Eiffel Tower and saying, I love you to the whole world. Have you um, ever managed to fulfill that childhood experience? It was such a decision to share that publicly and be like, yes, I wrote that. I'm pretty sure I did a little illustration of the Eiffel Tower and myself like hanging off like a big King Kong, like, I love you, like this. No, I've never been to Europe. It's definitely on the bucket list um, to, to do that, but... What's really interesting is that even though I haven't felt that emotion since, I can still remember what that was like. And it sort of, I think, left an imprint in the sense that prior to having that, I I don't think I could have conceptualized just purely rationally what that particular thing would have felt like, whatever happened when I was 12. And that's the thing. I'm not, not willing to make any commitments about what it was could have been anything, you know, I I said jokingly in my TED talk, like a flush of prepubescent hormones. Absolutely. It might've been, (laughs) but regardless of all that, I can still look at it, you know, as a, as an adult and say, okay, well, what actually came out of that and what am I left with? And, and I think an imprint is, is a really good way to describe it where, yeah, I have a really visceral lived experience of whatever that was that I could not have reached before then purely by thinking about it. So I think even that in itself as sort of a a phenomena is very interesting. Great. And as we wrap up, uh, what are three resources for anyone that wants to learn more or think more about this kind of mysticism stuff? I thought about this really hard because I am really, really passionate about philosophy materials being accessible to people without needing to do a full philosophy degree to understand it. That said, um, there is very sadly little in philosophy of religion discussing mysticism that is accessible. Um, So I've come up with two things for you. The first thing is just totally self-promotion is my TED talk, uh, which is can atheists have mystical experiences um, at TEDx Hobart in 2021. Um, We'll put that in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Um, Because I really did try to make everything accessible. The second thing is a little bit more high level, but um, I think that, you know, with some slow reading and a little bit of study pretty much anyone would be fine, um, is just the mysticism entry on the Stanford Encyclopedia of, of Philosophy. So that's edited by two philosophers who've both done a lot of work in philosophy of religion and in mysticism. And I think it just gives a really good broad overview and very well-researched overview of kind of the different perspectives and the questions. And the last section I'm of, of the page, I'm 
you know, particularly interested in, which is secular mysticism, where they're sort of saying this is an emerging field and it sort of raises a whole bunch of questions. And um, there's no mention of nature-based mystical experiences yet. But I think, yeah, if you want to get sort of a, a, a broad overview of mysticism uh, across all religions, as well as kind of the secular perspective, which is where I'm working in, um, that's a really great resource to look into. Cool. I'm sure that entry will appear soon, uh, as well as the Kika Garden. I'm sure that oh, will Oh, yes, up. yes. Yes, stay posted. I, I have certain spots in Hobart where there's sort of an empty shot front and I'll walk past and be like, okay, how will I how will I arrange all the things? The library will go over there and we'll do the lectures over there. And then I go, no, I have to finish my PhD first. Like I actually have to get the thesis in. I have to get that done and then we can look at all the fun stuff. So yeah, got to stay on, stay on topic. Yeah, I look forward to that. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute delight having you, Ari. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for everything you shared. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a really enjoyable conversation. I loved this conversation with Ari. I found it so full of life and an evocative reminder of the journey that we're all walking. Even if we come from different vantage points, different experiences, and end up making sense of it all in different ways too. According to an Australian community survey in late 2021, they found that for 52% of respondents, spending time out in nature was their favourite spiritual practice. And it's not all that surprising, is it? There's a wildness, a freedom an explosion of colour, sound and movement that comes with nature, that soothes the senses and pulls us out of the ordinary, that gives us an appreciation for things outside of our own gravitational pull and broadens our perspective. And I know for many Christians, it's a place where we can feel the magnitude, the creativity and the wonder of God. In Christian thought, nature has often been referred to as God's second book. And even though it predates the writings of the scriptures, it tells us so much about him and ourselves. Romans 1 talks about the creation of the world where God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. I'm quite captivated by the idea of Kant's dynamic sublime that Ari was sharing. When we look at the vastness, the beauty and the ferocity of nature, we'll all probably reach different conclusions, but we'll experience something of the divine, of the eternal, of the invisible that I think Romans is talking about. Now, admittedly, It's not the same as the specific mystical experiences that Ari and William James, for that matter, are talking about. I wonder if you've had an experience like that, some kind of spiritual encounter found in nature or elsewhere, with an abstract being or God dramatically upending your life, providing greater clarity and newness of life than what you had before. Reach out if you have. I know Ari would love to hear about them, as would I. It was so great to hear Ari explain as well as share her own experiences in that regard, especially coming from a position of non-belief. Super fascinating. Another angle that I found super interesting was William James's writings on mysticism and the example that he gives of St John of the Cross, a Spanish mystic who wrote Dark Night of the Soul in the late 16th century. And his encounter comes in the midst of suffering. I read his book a few years ago when I was coming to terms with the loss of my father. And I found it rich with spiritual insight and healing power. He talks about the soul, which refers to the inner being that governs our behaviour, our morality and our identity. This soul is often in a state of conflict, being pulled in all kinds of directions, regularly distracted from what really matters by grand ambitions and sensory pleasures. This, of course, makes us sitting ducks that can be devastated when the maelstroms of life smash through the floorboards of our calculated plans and defences. But it's also an opportunity for recalibration, 
for the soul to be purged of our imperfections when we encounter that divine sense of what really matters. And it kind of reminds me of the end of Job as well. A man afflicted by horrible tragedy and suffering who cries out to God for relief and understanding after his useless friends offer the worst possible advice. At the end of the book, God appears to answer Job in his suffering, and he appears from a violent storm of all things. God more or less uses the language and power of nature to help Job have that moment of clarity. I like to think this is the first mystical experience in the Bible, but there are probably heaps more. William James also has a fascination with the union aspect of religion. And after quoting the Apostle Paul talking about Christ living in him, he then quotes a French Christian mystical experience that describes it like this. Jesus has come to take up his abode in my heart. It is not so much a habitation and association as a sort of fusion. O new and blessed life, life which becomes each day more luminous. The wall before me, dark a few moments since, is splendid at this hour because the sun shines on it. Wherever its rays fall, they light up a conflagration of glory, The smallest speck of glass sparkles. Each grain of sand emits fire. Even so, there is a royal song of triumph in my heart because the Lord is there. It's intoxicating and vivid language. And then right at the end of his chapter on mysticism, William James says this, which seems a good place as any to finish. He writes, Mystical states indeed wield no authority due simply to their being mystical states. But the higher ones among them point in directions to which the religious sentiments, even of non-mystical men, incline. They tell of the supremacy, of the ideal, of vastness, of union, of safety, and of rest. They offer us hypotheses. Hypotheses which we may voluntarily ignore, but which as thinkers we cannot possibly upset. The supernaturalism and optimism to which they would persuade us may, interpreted one way or another, be, after all, the truest of insights into the meaning of this life. I don't know where you stand with this stuff and whether you're looking for insights into the meaning of life, but wherever you're at, I'd encourage you to get out and enjoy God's second book. Who knows, you might even have a mystical experience of your own. This is Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au.